the scripture reading this morning is taken from uh, some excerpts from John chapter 17 when Jesus was praying. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I pray for them. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Aren't we thankful that John kept in mind what Jesus prayed on his way to the cross? John will use three, nearly four chapters of his gospel to tell us about that prayer. We think of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, as the longest block of teaching in all the Gospels. But if we listen to this prayer, we understand that Jesus is not just praying. Uh, how many of you have experienced prayers from preachers? I'm guilty of this, right? Where you can tell that the preacher's praying, but what is he doing with his prayer? He is, say it with me, Preaching, and Jesus is preaching while he prays. Somebody say amen. This powerful word, that they may be one, and, and that the oneness of the disciples together is a oneness, not that Jesus said, now look, I know that we've never tried this before, and I know that nobody else has ever done this before, but I want you to be one. From the very creation, in fact, before the creation, for all of time, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, individual entities, chose to be identified as one. Their fellowship was so great that while there are nuances that we can identify to the three parts, they're greater, they have more in common than they do those individual expressions. And so Jesus says, as the Father and I are one, so I want these disciples to be one. And if you had any doubts about it, as Chad kept re reading, you understand that the prayer shifted not just for the disciples, but for all those who would follow, because it's a repetition of that same statement. It's not just that I want the disciples to all be one. There's something powerful going on there, okay? Because not only did we have this disunity of a zealot in the twelve and a tax collector in the twelve, but before we're done, we're going to have someone who denied him publicly, vehemently, calling down curses on himself, who they're expected to fold back into the one. And I want you to notice something very important. Now, and Please, I understand. The gospel is written several decades later. And we know Judas's story by the time we get to the time this is written. But if you take Jesus' words that John has recorded as the words of Jesus praying in the garden, 
We have to recognize that at some level, there may have even been the implication that when I want you to be one, this is not just talking to Matthew and Simon, the zealot, who I need to be one, even though their worldviews are completely oppositional, even though they both may be circumcised on the eighth day as Jews, their worldviews were as different as they could be. But I think implied in this is that you will invite Judas back into fellowship. Now, you may want to argue with that, and I'm happy for you to do that. But I think at least the implication lies there. And if not Judas, Peter is clearly to be reintegrated into their fellowship. I don't know what you've been mad at a brother and sister in Christ about. Something that they've offended you or something that they've done that you think that if you just do that, you can't know Christ anymore. And we, we tend to sort of push them away and say, you know, they're going to be something different. Paul will give instructions about disfellowshipping people. I will tell you that the circumstances under which those teachings occur are so extreme that for the most part, we don't have anything like that in today's world. And to decide that we're going to disfellowship somebody because we disagree on some nuance of teaching is to not follow what Jesus had to say. That they may be one, and this is the key, as you and I are one. And that they may be one so that the world will know that you sent me. There are implications to that statement that ring 2,000 years later, right now, today. If we are to be the people of Christ, Paul will say, if we are to be the body of Christ, then the oneness that Jesus experienced with the Father, not just in heaven, but even on earth, it seems, in the way John talks about it here, then the world will not only know that God sent Jesus, but that Jesus implied in that is the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. And that the cross is not a defeat, but the cross is an, a coronation. And the resurrection is the most defining day in all of human history. Somebody say, Amen. Notice how we give testimony to that. We might think, well, wait a minute, I haven't shared the gospel if I don't, if I don't say something. I haven't shared God's message of who Jesus is unless I've, I've made sure that I've, I've stepped forward and quoted Paul, that we know that Jesus lived among us, he died, and he was raised from the dead. Or the way John will say it, the definitive testimony is that Jesus came in the flesh and that it was the flesh that was taken to the cross and the flesh that was raised. If you take Jesus at his word, they will know who Jesus is by the way you and I experience and share the oneness that Christ shares with the Father. Not just with Christ. Now, that's, I won't say that's easy because... Anytime we chase after something that Christ lays before us, it is a lifelong journey, to a certain extent a lifelong struggle. But note that if we are to proclaim the gospel, it will be incomplete, and your words about the truth of who Jesus is will fail miserably. 
if you and I choose to let things divide us. Somebody will say amen. Somebody say amen. Let's read. It's kind of interesting, and forgive me. So the events of the prayer happened prior to this passage. The writing of the prayer probably happened after the passage. So you can either argue that Luke is following what John already knew was the prayer of Jesus, or you can say that John saw how Luke represented this fellowship at the earliest point of the church being formed, or I think most significantly, you can say that Luke reflected on what Jesus wanted the church to be, and John reflected on what God wanted the church to be, and lo and behold, they seem to come to a common ground. You know these words quite well. They're a very familiar passage to you. I decided to start off with the part that you knew well before I went into the next part so that you could all be on the ground where we are and we can all stand there together. And in fact, I'm going to ask you to quote part of it for me without my help. So you're just going to have to be ready. Do you need to stand to do that or can you do it sitting? Sitting? Okay, all right, very good. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Who's speaking? Peter is speaking. That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now please tell me what they're supposed to do. That was really weak. I just want you to know, you're in a church of Christ, and that was really weak. That's all I have to say about that. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then I think some of the best news of all comes next. For the promise is for you, and the promise is for your children, and your promises are all who are far off, for all on the Lord will call. And I'm sorry, if Jesus' resurrection is a reality, then there is no one in all of human history since that point that didn't get called to respond to that resurrection. Somebody say, Amen. The church is founded on these words. And now we turn the page. But it's just the next verse. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This idea of, go back, sorry David, this idea of save yourselves from this corrupt generation is the same call that John the Baptist had to them. Turn from where you are. Jesus offers you something different and better. Do not think that you can stay in the old way of, of being God's people, ID, that is, for example, under the leadership of the Jewish priest, the high priest and the priesthood in the temple. You can't do that anymore because Jesus is the temple and Jesus is the sacrifice and Jesus is the prophet and Jesus is the priest who make all things right. So you turn from them and turn to Christ. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation and 3,000 decided that that was a good thing to do on that day. Now, what did they do? How did they respond to that message? 
please understand that at this moment, Luke has shifted from recording a specific moment in time, a specific sermon, a specific invitation, and a specific response to that invitation on a specific day. And in less than a sentence, in fact, just with a paragraph, he is now going to summarize what went on among those people that heard that message, saw its truth, and then began to live inside of it. Here's what he says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. You need to understand this almost in Pauline terms. Paul will start his letters with these great theological treaties. God is one, there is none above him. Christ is all in all and there is none beyond him. You've been saved by grace through faith. There's nothing that can separate separate you from the love of Christ. And then about halfway through the letter, he says, Therefore, you've heard that before. You've read those letters enough to know. That transition from here's a theory to here's an application. Here's what it means. Luke, an associate of Paul's, maybe someone who found some of his writing style from Paul, says, this is the way they behaved, and guess what happened? This isn't just another fact to add to what was going on. This is a result statement. The result of people living under the apostles' teaching, to living in prayer, to living in the fellowship, to breaking bread together, to sharing their possessions together, to meeting together with glad and sincere hearts, worshiping God with all they were. The result of that was that last sentence, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The fellowship. You saw it in that translation. You can look through several translations, and what you're going to discover is that many of them will drop the article, the fellowship, from the statement. Because what we experience in modern times so much is the idea of this is what we're doing together, fellowshipping, right? We're sharing life together. In this place, Luke says, they devoted themselves to the teaching and the prayers. And right there in the original text is the idea of the fellowship. And I just want to build on that for just a second. Again, Luke is writing about a very specific time that happened. Pentecost, following Jesus' resurrection. And the days, weeks, and months, possibly even years that follow, were indicated by these, this summary statement. Devoted themselves to the teaching, to the fellowship, and to the prayer. Okay? And I want to tell you that by the time Luke wrote, it wasn't an abstract idea of 
people got together and they lived life together and they shared a common understanding of Jesus and the gospel and they shared a common understanding of the way God was renewing all things and bringing it all together under his rule. But instead, the church had become defined as a group of people that lived together in such intimacy, in such togetherness, in sharing in such a powerful way that they could be known as a group that had... They're not that just, just did fellowshipping or were fellowshipping or were hoping to fellowship, but they were the fellowship. In the same way that fellowship is ultimately defined by the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you and I are called to be a people of the fellowship, a distinct union that can only be accomplished. Notice Peter's sermon. When our sins are forgiven and we accept each other in that forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ and that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I want to promise you that there is no fellowship without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit enabling us to be more than our human selves can be. You may want to ponder that one for a minute. Because I want you to ponder it to the point that if you say, I'm not experiencing the fellowship that I think Alan's describing, that you might ask yourself, have you invited the Spirit? Not, by the way, just at your baptism when you said, yes, forgiveness of sins and gift of the Holy Spirit. But that every single day your life becomes an invitation for the Spirit to have more reign and more rule in your life. So if you are transformed more and more into what Christ wants you to be. And this is the key. Not so that you can be better. And not so that our church's fellowship can be better. But so that we can be witnesses to who Christ is and to what he wants to bring into reality on the earth. The fellowship. Just real quickly, I just want to highlight the way these two passages, powerful prayer that you've read before probably many times, and this powerful statement about the church tie together. Those who believe through your message, and guess what? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Notice the repetition. They may be one as we are one. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They had, Jesus said, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. Well, guess what? We don't share our worldly possessions. We don't share our monetary gain because it's a nice thing to do if you want to be who God wants you to be. We do that because it is part of the character of who God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are together. Everything they have to give to the others. And so our giving to each other can never be limited by what we put in the box. Our giving to each other has to be to the full extent that we can, and particularly to the full extent less than we can, but what is needed by the whole. So that they may be brought to complete unity. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I'm going to say something more about that in just a minute. So that the world may believe, and guess what? Because they were unified in that earliest stage of the church, God was adding to those, those to whom the, God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. 
I want to challenge you to understand the idea of the fellowship. And what I want you to know is that I, I am so thankful that I came here 12 years ago. And from the minute that I stepped in here, what I experienced was a wonderful, warm, open, and greeting group of people. From that first meeting, I have a feeling it was because you were getting kind of desperate. I don't know how many people had told you no at that point, but y'all wanted me to be here because you were being really, really nice. You were even being nice to Drew, and sometimes he's hard to be nice to. That's not true at all. But, but you were being very nice to Drew. There was a young lady that, I don't know, she was extra nice to Drew for some reason or another. I'm not sure what. So I'm not speaking to a church that hasn't experienced some idea of what fellowship is about. But if we are to be the fellowship that reflects that idea that Paul said of being the body of Christ that reflects what Jesus prayed for her ch his church above all other things, that they may be one as you, Father, and I are one, then we have to start defining the fellowship not simply as something we do on the side, but as the center core of what defines us. By the way, you're exactly right. What defines us is Jesus Christ. Somebody say... And there will nothing, no, no foundation is greater than what Jesus did. But if what Jesus did is any indication is that he gave himself and he became the king, he became the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our church so that we could be the fellowship. And if, it, if you decide that you're unwilling to adopt the idea that, that the what, that the fellowship is the what of the church, I want to at least give you the idea that you are willing to define the how of the church to be fellowship. Now we're going to spend a lot more time on these things in the upcoming weeks as we move through this series. But let me just say, if the how of the church is to tell the gospel, guess the number one thing that Jesus prayed and that the text submits to us is the way that we communicate the gospel. The fellowship. If you say to me, no, 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 I think the, the how of the church is that we be transformed by the Holy Spirit both individually and corporately, I would say to you that transforming work, and we're going to get to more details in this, I'll point you to Ephesians chapter 4, that transforming work is done by the way that we each act in the gifts that we have and contribute to them whole in the fellowship. If you say, no, 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 wait, it's foreign mission work, I would say to you, the point of foreign mission work is to bring people to know Jesus so that they can part, be part of the fellowship. Very quickly, this is going to be a long application for several weeks, but here's what I'm starting with today. And some of this will be incredibly, particularly applicable, and some of it will be broadly. First of all, if we are, if church is to be defined by the fellowship, then it cannot be just what happens in these couple of hours in this place. That wasn't a big enough amen, so I'm going to ask for it again. The church cannot be just what happens in these couple of hours in this place. Good. And by the way, for those of you who are good Wednesday night people, it can't be defined by adding an hour on Wednesday night. 
We must see ourselves involved in this relationship that ties us together and honors Christ every single day. Does your day stop at some point and allow the Spirit to lead you to reach out to someone inside our congregation? Does the Spirit open your heart up to the idea as you're out among the people, you're standing in HEB or Walmart or Kroger or wherever it is, and you realize these people don't know who Jesus is. And the Spirit prompts you not to figure out how you're going to stand there and say, repent for the end is near, but how you are going to become more engaged with your church family and more engaged with the fellowship that exists between Christians beyond the walls of buildings and places along the street that they meet on Sunday mornings. It cannot be defined by these couple hours. Secondly, I hope to be practical with this. There is a great challenge to be present, especially with those more isolated. Now, I want to be sure and say this was true 2,000 years ago when there was no pandemic. That there were widows that needed to be visited in their homes and needed to be cared for in very special kinds of ways. But this has particular application in our situation today. And, and I want to say how thankful I am for a very dedicated group of elders and deacons. And what I know is that some people kind of took on the special assignment of joining with the elders and deacons and their wives in making sure that every person that is known to our congregation is getting a phone call. I want to be sure and say, some of the people who get phone calls don't ever answer or return those calls. But they're being called, and I'm thankful for that. But that was a great mood when we thought that this would be over in a couple of months. It's not going to be. It hasn't been. And it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case. Now, I want to proclaim to you that I believe that there is a day when this will be behind us and nobody will be wearing a mask around their neck unless they are sick. And maybe we've learned that a little bit more, that if you're sick, you might ought to wear a mask when you go out. It must be a courteous thing to the other people that are around you. But we have to take specific steps. And I kind of want to challenge you. Sharon and I have talked about this, and we're challenging ourselves. That one evening a week, you make your route home from work to somebody's front door, particularly the people who aren't able to make it here in this place in this time, to knock on the door, to put on your mask, to back away, not six feet, to back away eight or ten feet, and converse in the presence of someone. I've fallen, fallen, fallen down on this, but when we first started doing the midweek updates, I would go and film people saying hello, and there was such joy in those moments. And I've, I've dropped that for busyness with other things. That doesn't need to be about me filming. That needs to be about you doing. And yes, I recognize that we have folks in our nursing homes that we cannot access. If your family, it sounds like a couple of places are letting you go in and just walk straight to their room and back out. 
but you absolutely have the ability. And make no mistakes, the people who are in our nursing homes are the generation where cards make all the difference. You say it's expensive. Please come here and take a whole stack of cards that we have more than we can count and bring them back to us and we will put stamps on them and mail them for you. If that what stands between you and writing a card to our people who are in the nursing homes, then don't let it stand that way. I'm going to say one more thing on this topic. This is not what separates us. This is a courtesy that I do for other people. I don't know how long I'm going to be doing this. I doubt that it'll be till there's a vaccine. But for now, it seems to be to be a courtesy when I am in a crowd. And by the way, I drive up to drive up windows, and as you would say, more often than I should. And when that person comes to the window, I'm going to have a mask on. Is that because it's the rule? It's not the rule. It's because I want to be courteous to them. But what I want you to know is that this is not what separates us in our fellowship. And if you have decided that I can't fellowship because those people have a mask on, then you have missed what Christ has called us to. I want to again say as strongly as I can say it, that the masks are not going to be permanent. I do not believe, even if we are encouraged by governmental forces that just wear your mask all the time. I think we're going to be the people of God and we're going to see beyond the need to just do that. There will be other things that we need to be sure we do to protect each other and be courteous to each other. Like wearing a mask when you're sick. But as far as our fellowship is concerned, our ability to be present with each other, do not let a mask stop you from doing that. Third, we've got to, and this is key, we cannot extend the grace to others that is needed to be the fellowship if we don't know the way grace has been extended to us. Your prayer life this week needs to include a line every single day. Father, thank you for the grace that you gave me to be part of your family, to be covered by the blood of Jesus and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And make me more aware of that great grace. Fourth, finally. Now I'm going to pick on you folks on YouTube. If you're joining us on YouTube, I'm very, very thankful. But I want to encourage you that to, to be the fellowship in these kind of times, as these things take place, we need to be a people who, if we're not going to be here, and we're going to be tuning in on the live stream, that we do it during this hour. Now, there will be things that prevent you from doing that. I understand that. A few years ago, we had folks in Saudi, and we weren't sending a live stream, and they weren't able to do that, but they watched as they could. In fact, they watched at the same kind of time that we would be doing it, although it was a service a week later. If you're going to watch, watch with us. And more than that, stay with us and take the Lord's Supper with us. 
We want you to be part of that. And I believe that the Spirit can use this shared experience to tie us to you and you to us, even in this time that we have to be separated by space and to a certain extent separated by things like a mask. Join us. Join with us. Join with us live while we're doing these things. I take you to 1 John for the invitation. 1 John chapter 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. That's three times already. And our fellowship... Sorry, next slide, please. This message we've heard from Him and declare to you, God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, there's the third one. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Just real quickly, the very first story, God created. Second story, man and wife became one. Third story, two boys sinned, one boy sinned, by hating, by breaking the fellowship of his family. If you need to find the forgiveness and the purification from sin that brings you into fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Father and the Spirit and brings you into the fellowship that he wants his people to be, and I ask you to come, if you're here, during this next song. And if you're not here with us, please, if you want to get a message to us about how you want God to be more involved in your life in that way,